So again, Romans uh, 1, uh, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of our Lord. Well, this passage is really uh, understood more clearly if we consider uh, what kind of question Paul is attempting to answer with this passage. The general question that comes before this passage would be something like this. I suppose we can articulate it differently. Uh, the question is this. Why is it that God's righteousness can only be obtained by faith? That, I think, is a good approximate of the kind of question that ought to be uh, floating in our minds as we look at this passage. Uh, why is it that God's righteousness can only be obtained by faith? That's what Paul has just said in verse 17. Of course, we know the answer. The answer is that men and women, since the fall of Adam, well, they're captive, aren't they, to their own unrighteousness. The gospel is that proclamation of salvation uh, by, uh, salvation by grace for undeserving sinners. Paul preaches that gospel and it proves to be the power of God to save the unrighteous. And so uh, Paul, commiserating perhaps internally over the power of the gospel, has told us that God saves by the gospel through faith. And here he is about to tell us why it is necessary that we be saved, not by our righteousness, but by faith. As I 
I have pondered this passage. I've looked at a number of uh, English Puritans, and so uh, I don't always do this, but this morning you're going to be hearing a lot of Puritan quotes. I just can't help it. And we'll start with Thomas Watson, who says, it is one thing to be a terrified sinner, and it is another to be a repenting sinner. You see, what, what Paul is describing for us is he's describing uh, the, the bedrock of the Gospels to uh, preach uh, a message of repentance. But God is also preaching to all those whom we come into contact with. And, and God's preaching is not the message of repentance. God's preaching is the, me- is the message of, of terror, terrifying the sinner, Thomas Watson goes on to say that the sense of guilt is enough to breed terror, but it is infusion of grace that breeds repentance. Paul says we have an opportunity then to preach the gospel of grace, but God is already at work. God is preaching a message that is intended to uh, terrify, a message that is intended to uh, proclaim to one's self their unrighteousness and their need for the grace of the gospel that then the church brings to them. And so when we proclaim the gospel, we're always reminding people of their unrighteousness, their need for repentance. But God is at work as well. In this passage, God is preaching. Here we find a a picture, uh, as it were, of God's preaching ministry. Uh, I can explain the outline of the sermon uh, very easily. Uh, The way this passage works is verses 18 and 20 and verse 32. Uh, The first three verses and the very last verse, uh, they're filled with present tense verbs. And so they belong together. And I think what Paul is doing here is the very beginning of the passage and the last verse of this passage, they they tie together to summarize an overarching principle. And that's the first point of my sermon this morning. I want to focus on those first three verses and that very last verse because here uh, Paul outlines a principle that I want us to be uh, very uh, acutely aware of. But then right in the middle of the passage, 11 verses verse 21 through 31. Paul sees fit to give us, uh, depending upon how you count it, uh, three illustrations of this principle. It's almost like the beginning and the end describe a principle, uh, but in the very middle, uh, Paul uh, leaves the present tense and he goes to the past tense and he describes how that principle uh, has unfolded through, uh, well, it would seem world history. And so the first point, the principle of, I'm calling it God's preaching ministry, the first three verses and the last verse. You see what Paul has done in verse 17, of course. Paul has uh, described for us that uh, he is the kind of man who is not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, The gospel is God's righteousness that's being uh, revealed. Uh, Paul and you and I have a glorious opportunity to uh, reveal uh, God's will as we preach the gospel. Uh, What are we revealing? We're revealing God's uh, created order, God's uh, holy intention for humankind and for creation. As we preach the gospel, we're revealing the disorder that man's sin has brought upon creation and upon himself. 
And we have an opportunity to to preach God's plan of redemption, his means of reconciling broken man and broken creation to himself. The offer of the promise of the covenant of grace, that is what we are preaching as we proclaim the gospel. And we have an opportunity to offer to any who would hear the only way that an individual can be saved, to be reconciled to God to be reordered after this cosmic disorder that his sin has brought, and that is faith. In preaching the gospel, we become God's own instruments to reveal his own mind, his own plan. That's heavy on Paul's heart in verse 17, but in verse 18, he's talking about another kind of preaching ministry. He says, God preaches from heaven. How interesting that we would be told from where this message comes from. You can see in verse 20, uh, Paul says that God shows himself from heaven, showing himself, revealing, as Paul says, his wrath. Not his fury. I think we oftentimes look at that word wrath and we uh, think of a person losing their temper and flipping over furniture. It's not God revealing his fury. It's God revealing his indignation. What do I mean by that? It's God revealing his negative assessment of mankind. This is God's great preaching activity. And according to Paul, that preaching activity is taking place uh, right here in the present. That's the tense at the beginning and the end of this passage. Uh, This preaching activity of God, God revealing his wrath his assessment of uh, man and creation's sense of righteousness. That's happening in the present, but to be sure, there's a future dimension. Paul is going to speak of later in 2 verse 5 of the great day of God's wrath. And we know that day, the second coming of Jesus, and it'll be clear to the entire universe how God assesses his creation. But Paul's making us uh, aware of the fact that God is revealing himself in the present, right now. A future revelation of his wrath, a present revelation of his wrath. Now, we wouldn't say, of course, that God is preaching the gospel. Please hear me, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, preaches the gospel, but we wouldn't say that God is here preaching the gospel. He's preaching uh, a component of the gospel, perhaps, mankind's lack of righteousness. God is preaching about his own judgment. Bavink says that the gospel is not law. It is in essence a promise. It's not a demand, it is a gift. It is a free gift of divine favor. Well, Paul's talking about the kind of revelation of God that's not that. Paul preaches the gospel, but God has a revelation of his own that he is is making uh, known to the world. He's making himself known through his wrath, his indignation. And so it's not the gospel, but it is a divine proclamation. And it's made in the present. This is rather hard for us to wrap our minds around. Even uh, as we spend time on these three verses, it's very difficult to discern uh, in what ways does God uh, make a proclamation of his wrath, his indignation. I want to mention three ways. The first way is this. How is it that God 
proclaims his wrath. And Paul tells us that God uh, hands people over to their sinful path. He actually turns them over. Three times in the middle of this passage, we find a verb that is, uh, is God uh, turning people over to their own sins. He, uh, in essence, gives them what their righteousness asks for. We might not think of this as a revelation of God's wrath, but Paul tells us that's what it is. God allows them to uh, perform a cosmic exchange, whether they know it or not. They exchange uh, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God, for a lie. And so over and over again, we read that in the middle of this passage. But Paul says in verse 18 uh, that these people suppress the truth. But God allows this for his own wisdom's sake, for his own plan his own glory he allows his creatures to actually remake themselves in their own images Uh, not only this he he allows them to approve others to do the same thing that's what we find in verse 32 and and somehow as that's happening this is God uh, making his wrath and his indignation known he actually takes his hands off of them for a while and he lets them fester in their unrighteousness Well, Paul calls that a revelation of God's wrath. I want us to say a bit more about that later. But that's the first way that Paul says that God reveals his wrath. He he lets people spin in their own unrighteousness. The second way uh, he reveals, uh, God reveals his wrath is this. God actually because humankind is allowed to do this, God actually does us a favor in terms of the proclamation of the gospel. Listen to this. You see, Paul has told us that he's not ashamed of the gospel. To people who suppress the truth, Paul is actually not ashamed to preach the truth. Paul knows what they are doing. He knows that they are stewing pridefully in their unrighteousness. And even in that setting, Paul's not ashamed to preach the truth. One scholar says this, he he says that whatever is under heaven, but not under the gospel is under wrath. And I like that picture. Whatever is under heaven, but not under the gospel is under God's wrath. And so when God takes his hands off the wheel, as it were, and allows them to to soak in their unrighteousness, he is actually intensifying the proclamation of the gospel. John Stott said that he uh, he, uh, would be confident in his proclamation of the gospel because he'd know that he's not the first one there. They're they're actually uh, prepared to hear the gospel, John Stott says. They uh, preach the gospel to themselves. Somehow, deep inside of them, God has already begun the work, prepared their hearts for his preaching of the gospel. And as God allows them to stew in unrighteousness, to suppress the truth day in and day out, God is actually intensifying, adding a spark of light to the proclamation of the gospel, making the gospel stand out all the more. And so we can go to people and we can say that as you are, Without the protection of the gospel, you are stewing in the wrath of God. 
And Romans 2.5 says that there will come a time when you see that very clearly. But I'm here now to offer an umbrella over you between God's wrath and your unrighteousness. You see, what, you see what has happened there. God has actually in his revelation given light to the preaching of the gospel. And those, are, those are two ways. There's a, there's a third way uh, that God is uh, making his uh, wrath uh, known. And Paul says in verses 19 and 20 this, he says that God makes himself visible. And in the Greek, the way Paul describes this, it's almost as if it's a pun or a limerick, that that, that the invisible God actually makes himself visible. And Paul plays with these two words as he's telling us what God does. For what can be known about God is plain to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. Look at that. Invisible attributes, clearly perceived. And Paul goes on ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Now, forget for a moment that this is very complex. It's hard to ascertain what exactly that means. But I want you to hear the echo of God's activity in making himself known. He's revealing his wrath, but he's actually working to reveal his wrath. And in the creation of the world, there's a vestige of who God is that remains after the fall of Adam and Eve. There's a vestige that remains in humankind after the fall of Adam and Eve. And God uses that vestige in a mysterious way to make his wrath known. Not only that, to reveal something that is invisible, that it might be visible even in non-believers. That's mysterious. But God preaches his wrath by making his unseeable self somehow mysteriously seeable. His very deity is made manifest even to those who suppress the truth over and over and over again. You see, we want to preach to the whole world. I hope you want to preach to the whole world. We want to see the gospel to go uh, to every nation, to every tribe, to every people. And we know that uh, not everyone is going to say yes to the gospel. And we know that we're not ourselves going to be able to uh, reach the entire globe with the gospel. But we want that. Even if the whole world won't listen. But God has beat us to it. Already, in every human being, God has made a testimony of his wrath. That's almost too hard to believe but here it is in scripture all of mankind sees enough of God in the created world and in the depths of their own desires their own conscience to know God's wrath that's what Paul is saying and so here are the, th- here are the three things uh, very quickly and I want to continue uh, God has uh, actually handed people over to their, uh, this cycle of sin in their lives and then God has intensified the proclamation of the gospel in doing so uh, but thirdly uh, God makes his unseeable self seeable in the things that he has created now, all of that together is very hard to understand uh, God has preached to everyone How can that possibly be? 
We know that the world is filled with people who hate Jesus, and yet God is saying they know something about me already. Jonathan Edwards said said it this way. Uh, He said that what God has made known to them is a discovery of the soul so that mankind becomes sensible of the heinousness of disobeying and casting contempt upon God. What do you think about that? I dare say it's rather bold to disagree with Jonathan Edwards. It can be done. But that seems to me what Paul is saying in verses 19 and 20. That God has uh, left uh, some kind of discovery of the soul so that mankind can in some way uh, become sensible of their heinousness before God. I do know that uh, I have uh, heard people talk about this, who, especially those who were converted as uh, adults, that there was uh, something that they knew was wrong with their life, with their sin. There was something that didn't fit quite right. There was something that they hated about it and yet at the same time loved it and propagated it. Well, Edwards goes on to say this. He says that mankind cannot see anything of God's loveliness, his amiable and glorious grace, or anything which should attract their love. Interesting. Mankind can't see that. But they can see his terrible greatness to excite their terror. Now, there may be some here who know exactly what that's like. Trapped in a cycle of sin, loving their unrighteousness, but knowing that as they went to sleep, they knew that something was wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. Some of you know what this is like. And then at some point you came to see that this was not the proper experience of what it means to be a human being and that the world around you is not showing the proper experience of what it means to be something that is beautiful. There's a story that uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee tells. He, uh, this is a book about the history of cancer. Uh, I love this book. I've cited it uh, to you before. But he talks to people who are struggling with uh, cancer. He talks to a woman uh, whose struggle is leukemia. And he says it's very interesting that the leukemia had become so deeply personalized, so interiorized, that she just felt like it, it belonged to her. In fact, she felt like the entire world was a zombie world. She wasn't the zombie. Everyone else was wrong. She had interiorized the disease. And she began to feel as though it was normal and everyone else was abnormal. And that happens with sin as well. That it becomes so interiorized that it just feels absolutely normal. That it belongs to you. That there's no escape from it. And these two verses, 19 and 20, for someone like that, ought to be very encouraging. Ought to fill you with hope that what you are experiencing is not the way it's supposed to be. Lost in your sin, over and over and over again, that is not what God made you to be. And we, as heralds of the gospel, have an opportunity to trust that God has placed that awareness deep inside of them. Not knowing how it'll come out, when it'll come out, if it'll come out, if it'll mean anything at all, if they will simply go to the grave as suppressors of the truth, thinking that they are right, their understanding is correct, and everyone else is wrong. That may be 
But we have an opportunity to hold out the gospel and say with full confidence, you know that this is not right. You know that this is unrighteousness. You know that you will never flourish as a suppressor of the truth. You know that you were meant for something far greater than this. We actually have an opportunity to make that beautiful proclamation. Why? Because God has done his proclamation. It proclaims to men and women and children that they're not meant to suffer an eternal feedback loop of sin. An opportunity to tell them that leukemia is a tragic invader. That unrighteousness is a tragic invader. We get to tell people this in the gospel of grace. God has gone before us. And so what's God saying to them? He's saying in verse 20 that they're without excuse. This is the universal truth of all humankind. This is what unites us. Different races, different gender. But no one has an excuse before God. They are all without excuse. His wrath is proclaimed to them in allowing them to suppress his truth. His wrath is proclaimed to them in a church that is not ashamed to preach the gospel, even as it sounds irritating to them. And God proclaims to them in the nature of the known world that mysteriously tells them that this is not the way things are meant to be. This passage, no doubt, is very hard to understand. But we have to understand it in light of the gospel and Paul saying, I'm not ashamed to preach it, and there's only salvation by faith. Now, the 11 verses in the middle, this uh, principle of God's preaching ministry, preparing the heart to hear the gospel, this principle is extended, it seems, over time, beginning at verse 21, and we have uh, two or possibly three uh, vignettes Why do you think it is that Paul would spend uh, 11 verses expounding upon God's declaration of wrath in the past tense? Two or three times. Why do you think it is that God, or I'm sorry, that Paul would do this? It seems to me that he could jump straight from verse 20 to 32 and have made his point. One commentator says the reason Paul stretches this out in the middle of the passage uh, is uh, in in these various cycles uh, is because uh, what Paul wants to show us is that uh, this uh, suppression of God's truth has happened throughout the history of mankind. Uh, This is not new. This exchange of the truth and this God's handing them over to sin. Well, this has happened in every age. That's what Paul is saying. It's going to look differently, be explained differently. But it's happened in every age and will always happen right up to the second coming. It might be called paganism in one era, rationalism in another, modernism, consumerism, or whatever. One commentator says the reason Paul takes the principle and expands it over time is so that we would see that it's happening right now and it'll happen tomorrow. We'll just call it something different. But it's nothing more than individuals suppressing the truth of the gospel. It could also be that uh, Paul gives these three particular scenes because he wants each of these to represent different aspects of human propensity to sin. And that could be it as well, that that Paul is uh, helping us to see that that sin expresses itself in a myriad of ways, that unrighteousness unfolds in ways that look uh, very different through different eras. Uh, So it could be that, but I think it also might be this. 
Reformed people are always doing this. I'm just preparing you. Reformed people always look for evidence of the covenant of grace in Scripture. They can't help it. I wonder if what Paul is doing in these 11 verses, right here in the middle of this passage, exploding, if you will, uh, the theme that is presented at the beginning and the end of the passage, uh, I wonder if Paul is stretching this scene out in all of these past tense verbs so that he might show us a small glimmer of God's grace. You see, God allows unrighteousness to flourish. Why do you think that is? Over and over again in the history of the world, God, it would seem, is allowing unrighteousness to flourish. Suppressors of the truth, exchanges of the truth, all over the place throughout the history of the world. Over and over and over again. And Paul describes it with minute detail. This is what's happening. Why is he telling us this? You notice that God allows this to happen, but he doesn't absolutely destroy these individuals right now. He allows this to happen. He allows the sin to flourish. He allows the refusal to worship God to flourish. (laughs) John Newton says this. He says, so wonderfully does the Lord proportion the discoveries of sin and grace, for he knows our frame, that if he were to put forth the greatness of his power, a poor sinner would be instantly overwhelmed and crushed as a moth. Do you feel that in your life? God is infinitely patient with you. Why? To profess faith in Jesus Christ and to continue to struggle with the same sins. Why should he be patient with you? But he is. You know that and I know that. But there is something about the patience of God, the grace of God, even evidenced in the world around us by those who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. God allows their sin to flourish and for them to continue to spin in it. And John Newton says, if all of God's power were shown, he'd crush us all like a moth. But he doesn't, not even to the world. Now, we're not the kind of people who are to praise God for the flourishing of sin around us. That's not what I'm saying at all. However, Keep in mind that what Paul is saying is that this has been happening for a long time. Suppressors of the truth all around us. And yet God doesn't crush them. Why doesn't he crush them? Why doesn't he crush them? Be done with them. Purify the world. So that you and so that I can tell them about the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. It could be you have a better answer than that. I'm willing to hear it. But this seems rather clear to me. Paul is uh, taking in the past tense uh, all of these verbs that would show horrible, horrible realities of the unrighteous life and he unfolds them over and over and over again so that we might see that these are opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't destroy them immediately. In these various stages, he, he says uh, in verse 21, verses 21 through 23 that uh, this uh, suppression of the truth happens in such a way that uh, these individuals uh, refuse to bestow honor upon the king as God and submit to his rightful rule, and instead they become futile. Perhaps they justify themselves, their own rule. They refuse to worship God as king, and ultimately they reveal who they really are, foolish to the very heart. Paul describes this in time. There was that, that happened, and it happens now. 
verses 24 through 27, uh, it's, it seems to be more than simply a, a foolishness of heart. These few verses seem to represent that, uh, what God has, uh, has a, a development of sorts that things kind of get out of hand in the sin of the world and yet God still allows it to happen. The foolishness of the heart turns to lust of the heart and they not only refuse to honor God, but these unrighteous individuals become an adoration of and in bondage to their deepest appetites. You know, Paul seems to be describing a horror story. People who are so lost in their sin. It's not merely foolishness. They're eating themselves up. So filled with a desire to uh, satisfy their appetites. Passionate desire, Paul calls it. So passionate that they take something like marriage that God created and they turn it into something else so that their appetites would be fed. Relationships in which God has designed to, to satisfy desire, to guide our behavior. Those kinds of relationships are not unfolding according to God's design, but they're expressed according to the designs of humankind. Mankind begins to define what is right according to what, he, to what feels right, according to what matches selfish desires best. A foolish heart becomes a heart without shame. And that produces behaviors without shame. And just in case, just in case we might exclude ourselves from this picture, uh, Paul at the very end of this section, he, he says that uh, there is this uh, enormous vocabulary of sins. Uh, in verses 28 through, 30, through 31, Paul uh, gives us words that don't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. And he says that uh, the myriad of sins that unfold from the suppression of truth have names uh, like uh, uh, Murder and envy and strife and deceit and maliciousness and so on and so forth. And we look at this world and Paul's unfolding this world to us and we should cry, we should weep. Humankind is lost in unrighteousness. And I want you to notice something at verse 31 that Paul just stops. He just stops. He crushes us, weighs us down describes humankind in such a way that there's no hope for this man or for this woman. Why does he just stop? I wonder if there's a reason why he just stops. You see, he's gonna go on to hammer us a little bit more. In the beginning of chapter two, he's gonna say, but wait a minute, for those of you who have a moral code, who are better than all of this, I'm gonna talk to you next. But here he just stops. And I think he stops to remind those who profess faith in Jesus of what great grace they've received. All of us, even as Christians, are thrown in this lot. And as Paul describes unrighteousness, he reminds us that even in our profession of faith, especially in our profession of faith, we are the undeserving unrighteous who have been saved by God's righteousness. And here's, a, here's a, another Puritan. It's one thing to be a terrified sinner that's one thing. But it's so beautiful to be a repenting one. And I want all of us to understand that even in our profession of faith, we have to be reminded that we are saved only by faith. There's no other way to be saved. That's it. Nothing more. 
There's a wonderful illustration of this in uh, Thomas Goodwin. I told you there'd be a lot of Puritans. Goodman reminds us, all of us know this, that we know that when Cain killed his brother Abel, that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. What a remarkable scene that is in our minds, that that Abel's blood actually cried out. What did it say to Cain? Cain lived with that cloud of being a murderer his entire life. When did Abel's blood ever stop crying? It never stopped crying. This is the haunting reality of living as someone who suppresses the truth. There's that echo of sin always. Now, Goodwin says, for Christians, uh, there have been martyrs that have gone before us, saints who have died, and we ought to remember their blood and be encouraged to become martyrs for the faith as well. But Goodwin goes on and he says this, and this is where I want to conclude. Here we see people who are suppressing the truth of the gospel spinning themselves in a vortex of God's wrath and judgment. It's not going to get better unless they, they come to the gospel in faith. And, and Goodwin says this. He says, the blood that cries out for the Christian is the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, Cain had Abel's blood crying out all the time, all the time, all the time. And Christian, you have the blood of Jesus Christ crying out all the time, all the time, all the time. But you're never going to listen to that cry unless you repent of your own unrighteousness, see your own unrighteousness. You're never going to hear the cry of Jesus' blood. You'll cheapen it, you'll water it down. And you need this reminder. And I want you to hear what Paul is doing and then I'll close in prayer. What Paul is doing is Paul is singling out those who refuse to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing to the unregenerate. And he wants us to understand about the unregenerate is that God has taken his hands from them for a season that you might go and be with them to preach the gospel to them. But Paul then turns the finger on us. And he says that God is leaving the unregenerate in that situation so that you might see better what you have in my grace. They refuse to listen to the blood of Jesus Christ. They have the blood of Abel shouting, shouting, shouting. And brothers and sisters, what Paul's doing is he's reminding us we have the blood of Jesus Christ shouting and shouting. He's not ashamed of the gospel to preach it to them nor to preach it to you let's pray together our holy father we thank you that you are sovereignly in control over all things we thank you heavenly father that you've placed your thumbprint on all of creation now heavenly father we pray that you would give us courage to go into the world and to not be ashamed of the gospel. You have gone before us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.